There's a popular children's story entitled, Who's Your Mother? I used to read it to my girls when they were young. The story is about a baby bird who hatches from the egg and falls out of the nest while the mother bird is away looking for some food. The baby bird goes searching for his mother, whom he has never seen. Along the way, he encounters various animals, like a cow and a dog, whom he mistakenly thinks might be his mother. Each time he meets an animal, he asks the same question. Are you my mother? Finally, the little bird meets what he calls a snort. The snort is actually a steam shovel that he thought was his mother until it snorted at him. The steam shovel picks up the baby bird and takes him back to his nest just about the time that his mother returns. My friends, who's your mother? I think many Christians are confused about their spiritual mothers and need to be brought back to the source of their spiritual lives. Who's your mother? Do you know the answer to that important question? Paul addresses that question in Galatians 4. He develops a rather complex allegory in this section of Galatians based on the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar in the book of Genesis. The basic point of all that Paul explains in this passage is, remember your mother. Why do you need to remember your mother? You need to remember your mother because, first of all, your mother produces your life. Your mother produces your life in verses 21 to 28 of Galatians 4. Paul concludes his theological argument for our liberty in Christ with an allegory. This allegory serves the same purpose that a preacher's concluding story serves in a sermon. It drives home the point with emotional power, and it summarizes the arguments Paul has been making in the book of Galatians. An allegory is a figure of speech, sometimes called an extended metaphor. An allegory draws a series of comparisons between a story or historical event and the spiritual principles which we can use today. One of the most famous and familiar allegories is Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia are some modern allegories. They are stories that illustrate spiritual truths. Now Paul is not saying that the story of Hagar and Sarah mean these principles. He is doing application, not interpretation in these verses. Paul is talking about significance here, not meaning. He is using some actual historical events and applying the details of those events to our lives today. The Jews loved allegories. The legalizers were very fond of stories like that of Hagar and Sarah. And Paul was probably using the story because the legalizers had used the story to prove the superiority of Judaism over the Gentiles. Paul, of course, uses their very own arguments from the story 
against them. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 4.21. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Paul goes on to draw a series of sharp contrasts between law and grace based on this story of Abraham and his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. You remember that story in Genesis 16 and again in 21. Abraham and Sarah were getting old, and she still had no children, so she suggested that Abraham take her slave Hagar and have her bear him an heir. Abraham did that, and Hagar bore Ishmael to be his son. Fourteen years later, God miraculously gave a son to Sarah as God had promised, and they named the son of promise Isaac. Isaac and Ishmael were physical half-brothers, and Paul is going to argue that the legalizers and the believers are spiritual half-brothers too. The Jews prided themselves on the fact that they were descendants from Abraham through Isaac and not through Ishmael. Notice as we go through the text how Paul turns that argument against the legalizers and says that they are spiritually actually the descendants of Ishmael, while the Gentile Galatians are the true descendants of Isaac. Paul draws four contrasts in this passage between the two mothers and their children, which he applies spiritually to us as Christians. The first contrast is Hagar the slave woman versus Sarah the free woman in verse 22. Hagar the slave woman versus Sarah the free woman. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, the slave woman, and one by the free woman. Who's your mother? Are you the child of the slave woman or the free woman? Which mother do you take after? If you are in bondage to the law and sin and guilt, then you are a child of Hagar, the slave woman, because any child born to a slave is a slave. But if you are freed from that bondage in Christ, then you are a child of Sarah, the free woman, Any child born of the free woman is free. So remember your mother because she gives life to you. The second contrast is in verse 23. Ishmael, the natural son, versus Isaac, the supernatural son. Verse 23 reads, But the son by the bondwoman, the slave woman, was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. There are actually two main differences between these two sons. The first difference is that one is born to a slave and one is born to a free woman. But the second difference has to do with the means of conception. Ishmael was born by natural means. Abraham was 86 years old at the time and capable of reproducing, while Hagar was well within her natural childbearing years. So the conception of Ishmael was a natural conception. However, 
Isaac was born completely by supernatural means. Abraham was 99 years old at the time, and Sarah was long past her childbearing years. And we are told that they were not able to reproduce. So Isaac is the product of a miracle. Not only that, but Ishmael was not promised by God. He is not the child of promise, but of expediency. Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands to accomplish what God had promised to do. So Ishmael is the son of expediency and human effort, while Isaac is the son of promise and grace. The contrast Paul draws is between works and grace, between human effort and God's provision. If you believe that you can achieve salvation by your natural, ordinary abilities to perform God's requirements, then you are like Ishmael, who was born of natural means. You believe in the gospel of human effort. But if you realize that you can never, ever achieve salvation by your own abilities and your own works and your own performance, and you only enjoy salvation by the miracle of God's grace, then you are like Isaac, the son of promise. The third contrast is found in verses 24 to 26. It is the old covenant versus the new covenant. Galatians 4.24 This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. The spiritual contrast is between two covenants. We are no longer under the old covenant, which is the law, but we are under the new covenant, which is grace. Law is from Mount Sinai, and Hagar represents Mount Sinai because the law leads to bondage, and she is a slave. Therefore, all her children are slave children. In fact, Hagar represents the present earthly Jerusalem because the current Jerusalem is based on keeping the law. Even the Jerusalem today in our modern world is focused on human effort, and any gospel of human effort stems ultimately from Hagar, the slave woman. This analogy would have, have been a, a big slap in the face to the legalizers, who looked on Jerusalem and the law as the epitome of their spiritual superiority to all Gentiles. In contrast, Paul argues in these verses that the new covenant is the covenant of promise. The new covenant is represented by the heavenly Jerusalem, which is free, not the earthly Jerusalem, which is in bondage. And all the spiritual children of Sarah are free as well. 
No longer are we under the bondage of works and human effort because we are freed by God's grace. So Paul wants to know, who's your mother? Is your mother human effort or divine grace? The final contrast is in verse 27. It is unbelievers versus believers. Unbelievers are followers of human effort, but believers are followers of divine grace. Religious people emphasize moralism, but genuine Christians celebrate grace. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Paul is picking up on the theme of dueling Jerusalems in this verse. He is reminded of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 54.1 about a future Jerusalem. And if you go back to the context of this passage in Isaiah you will realize that the barren woman is not a literal woman in Isaiah. The barren woman is the city of Jerusalem, which has been destroyed and her people taken into Babylonian captivity. The barren woman in Isaiah is the city, not Sarah. So Paul is talking about Jerusalem. And the point of Isaiah's prophecy in its context is that Jerusalem would be restored by a miracle of God's grace one day, and her future blessings will be far greater than her past blessings. More people will inhabit the future Jerusalem than ever inhabited the past Jerusalem. Paul does not deny that Isaiah's prophecy will be literally fulfilled here. Instead, he uses this passage to apply to the principle of grace in our lives today. Grace seems like a barren woman who mourned, while law is like a woman with many children. Yet, in the end, the tables are turned. Grace will produce far more fruit than law ever produced. We can understand this idea better when we realize that Isaiah 54, 1 immediately follows Isaiah 53, which of course is the great passage about Christ's sacrificial death for us. If you put Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 54 together, you realize the point Paul is making. The last verse of Isaiah 53 reads, He poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Then Isaiah erupts with shout from joy, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. The crosswork of Christ will produce a greater offspring than any religious moralism, and that is worth shouting about, my friends. We are heirs of the Savior by grace, not law. 
The story is told about a new convert who was worried about losing his salvation because no matter how hard he tried and how much he prayed, he could never be perfect. He always messed up. The teacher said, Do you see this dog? He's my dog. He is house-trained and never makes a mess. He is immediately obedient to my commands. Not in the kitchen. I have a baby son. He makes a mess. He throws food around, and he fouls his pants. He is a total mess. But who is going to inherit my kingdom? Not my dog, but my son. My son is my heir. And you are Christ's heir, because it is for you he died. My friends, you are Christ's heir, not because you are perfect, but because he is perfect. And his perfection guarantees our inheritance by his grace. So remember your mother, because your mother produces life for you. And secondly, you must remember your mother because your mother deserves your love. Your mother deserves your love in Galatians 4.28 to 5.1. It's not enough to know your mother and to know the source of your spiritual life. You must also refuse to be enslaved again to the moralism of the law. This is a daily battle. Because all around you are people who will enslave you to law once again. These are well-meaning religious people who are strong moralists. We must fight against this mentality which equates spirituality with good works, no matter how nice the analogy sounds. So you must make a choice each and every moment to live by grace and not by law. This is how you love your true mother. Love requires loyalty, verses 28 to 30. Love requires loyalty. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Grace is your mother, and you must be loyal to your mother. You better expect persecution when you take a stand for grace, even in the church. The enemy will use every means to intimidate us into bondage once again. Expect criticism to come the minute you understand your freedom in Christ. Paul alludes to the story of Ishmael and Isaac, but now he tells us that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. The biblical record never tells us this, although it does seem to indicate some sibling rivalry in Genesis 21. However, Paul is again drawing on the Jewish teachings that the legalizers were using against the Galatians. The Jewish teaching, the Jewish feeling, was that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. 
so he had to be banished. Paul is saying that the legalizers are like Ishmael. They are badgering the Galatians to control them under their religious laws. We often expect persecution from non-Christians, from the world, but Paul tells us that we should expect persecution from religious leaders, the legalists, the moralists. When you take a stand for liberty and against legalism, you can expect to get the most persecution not from the world, but from other religious people. Religious people hate the doctrines of liberty and grace because they run counter to the gospel of human effort. Religious people think that it's unfair that immoral people should be saved by grace because they didn't earn their salvation by their works. That's unfair. During the Dark Ages, it was the church that kept the message of grace away from the people in order to control them by religion. People lived in bondage to works. They were told to pay indulgences and offer prayers upon prayers, and then, maybe, if they were good enough and did enough good things in their lives, they would get into heaven because of their good works. The people had little hope of being good enough for heaven, so they were kept in bondage to the church that controlled them by law for nearly a thousand years. Then men like Wycliffe, Huss, Knox, Luther, Calvin began to preach against the moralism of the church, and they paid dearly for it. Many died as martyrs, killed by the church, because they stood for grace. Martin Luther knew the fires of spiritual battle came not from the pagans, but from the religious people of his day. These reformers preached salvation by grace, and the religious world persecuted them heavily because they were a threat to the control of the church. The church hunted them down, burned them at the stake, Why? Because the religious world hates the message of grace. The religious world detests the liberty of people who are saved by grace. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 30 that there can be no compromise with legalism. And he goes back to the story of Hagar and Sarah, and he quotes Genesis 21.10 where Sarah told Abraham to get rid of Hagar. Paul again uses allegorizing to refer to how believers must then relate to legalizers. Get rid of them. The Greek verb means to throw them out. He's not talking about how we treat unbelievers. He is talking about how we treat religious moralists. Throw them out. Legalism and liberty cannot coexist peacefully. There can be no compromise between the two. This may well have been the capstone of Paul's argument with Peter back in Galatians 2, you remember, when Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles because the legalists were there. Legalism and liberty cannot coexist, Peter. You must make a choice between the two because they are not compatible with one another. 
And we have the same experience today. If you enter a church which is based on legalism, get out of it. If you enter a church that is based on smug self-righteousness and a performance salvation, then leave. You must not be part of a church that teaches that the observance of certain rules, regulations, or rituals will save you. A church that teaches you are saved by good works is legalistic. Furthermore, if someone comes into the church you are part of teaching that you must be baptized to be saved, or that your spirituality is determined by your attendance in church, or that you must meet certain cultural expectations to be a Christian, then you must put them out of your fellowship. They will corrupt the fellowship. They will destroy the faith of others. I know, that's, uh, that doesn't sound very loving. But which love is more important? Your spiritual mother, who is grace, deserves your love more than those who would destroy her. Love for your spiritual mother requires loyalty. So you really don't love grace if you promote law. Your mother needs your loyal love. Not only does love require loyalty, but love requires fidelity. Galatians 4.31-5.1 to Paul makes two statements and two commands as he brings his message to a climax. Galatians 5.1 is the climax of the entire book of Galatians. The entire letter comes together at Galatians 5.1. Two statements, two commands. The first statement Paul makes in verse 31 is that we are children of freedom. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. This summarizes the point Paul has been making. Remember your mother. You were saved by grace, not law. So remember the source of your life is grace, not law. The second statement in chapter 5, verse 1, is that we are set free for freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. The objective of Christ's liberating work on the cross is to give us freedom. You are free. He didn't save us so that we could enter a new and different form of the same old religious bondage. He saved us so that we could be freed from all religious bondage. That was his purpose. So any legalist actually demeans the cross of Christ by their moralism. They attack the sufficiency of the cross for our salvation. We are children of freedom. We are set free for freedom. And after Paul makes those two statements, he drives home the application with two commands in chapter 5, verse 1. First, stand with mom. Second, don't give in. Stand with mom and don't give in. He commands us to stand firm. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, ongoing, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Both commands 
are present tense verbs, meaning that this is not a one-time experience. It is an experience we must continue every moment of our lives. It is an ongoing experience. We must stand with mom every moment of our lives. And we must refuse to be enslaved to guilt and sin and law every moment of our lives. It's a daily decision. In fact, it's a moment-by-moment decision. It is true that we shouldn't allow anyone else to enslave us. Stand with mom and don't let anyone else enslave us. But here the verb actually indicates that we should not even enslave ourselves. Therein lies the real problem for most of us. We enslave ourselves. That's the truth of the matter. We enslave ourselves far more often than anyone else enslaves us. You say, well, Dave, how do I enslave myself? You enslave yourself every time you allow yourself to be controlled by guilt for something which has already been forgiven. You enslave yourself every time you allow yourself to be controlled by a performance spirituality. You enslave yourself every time you refuse to give up bitterness and resentment toward another person. You enslave yourself whenever you determine your spirituality by how many times you go to church or how many good deeds you do that week or if you perform certain religious rituals. You enslave yourself to these things. The sad fact is that an awful lot of people live in bondage to themselves and they won't let it go. Are you living in such bondage today? My friends, you can be free in Christ. Pastor and author Stephen Brown tells a story about a woman who came to him for counseling very early in his ministry. She had been unfaithful to her husband 20 years before. Even though the affair ended long ago, the sin haunted her for all these years, and she lived with intense guilt. He recommended that she tell her husband about the affair, even though that would be very difficult. She responded by saying, Pastor, I trust you enough to do what you ask, but if my marriage falls apart as a result, I want you to know that I'm going to blame you. And she didn't smile when she said it. Stephen Brown says that he began to pray with great fear. Father, if I gave her dumb advice, forgive me and clean up my mess. But a short time later, he saw her again, and she looked 15 years younger. He asked what happened. She exclaimed, when I told him, he replies that he had known about the incident for 20 years, and he was just waiting for me to tell him so that he could tell me how much he loved me. Then the woman started to laugh. He forgave me 20 years ago, and I've been needlessly carrying all this guilt for all these years. My friends, how many of you are like that woman in your relationship with Jesus Christ? 
You have been living in bondage to guilt for many years. You try so hard to be good enough for God, but you feel so guilty when you don't measure up. Come to Christ today. Accept his grace. You will find his arms open wide and you will hear him say to you, Oh, my child, I forgave you a long time ago. I have longed for you to accept my forgiveness and stop trying to earn it. Come into my presence and know the joy of my grace. You are free. <laughs>